Hey everybody, it's great to be with you. My name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Norton. It's great to be with you uh, wherever you're at, uh, whatever time of day it might be that you're watching this. So glad we have this opportunity. Uh, <clears throat> a couple of months ago, my brother, myself, and, and our boys backpacked at a state park in Western PA. Uh, and it was interesting because it was one of the first places they discovered oil in the United States. Uh, the history of the place was fascinating because as soon as they found oil, everybody kind of descended into this little valley. And there's actually um, writings that talk about that people would, would come into town in their stagecoach and when they would step off onto the ground, they would sink knee deep in mud and oil. Um, that was a long time ago. Uh, and since this valley has, has been reclaimed, it's a, it's a beautiful place full of mountain streams and, and a waterfall. There's a, there's a big river that runs through the middle of it where you can find people uh, fly fishing. Uh, but it's interesting that even though nature has reclaimed the park, the, the hike was still fill, filled with uh, old, abandoned, rusty shacks, wooden barrels, pipes from over a century ago. Um, but I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, it gives hope that the effects of irresponsibility can be reversed, um, which is the kind of truth I think gives the Apostle Paul the hope that he needs to encourage this messy church in Corinth to make changes to reclaim the beauty of God's church. Uh, in a similar way, <clears throat> uh, have you ever hiked to a mountain lake? And you just kind of anticipate the kind of thing that is going to take your breath away. And, and you get there and you, only to discover that uh, there's rubber tires in the, in the water. Someone left a pile of aluminum cans and, and wrappers behind. Um, we've been to places where it feels like you're the first person to ever stepped foot in that place. Only to have that feeling ruined by a beer can or a juice box or a dirty sock. Uh, it, it ruins a beautiful moment. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing Paul felt when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. I mean, through his sacrifice for our sin, his, his resurrected life, Jesus made possible the wonder, the beauty of the church. It was intended to be beautiful and attractive to outsiders. Uh, it's his desire uh, is to build to a, a body of people who reflect his glory and his love and his grace. However, the local church in Corinth was anything but glorious and beautiful. Instead, as we've seen over the last few weeks, it was full of division and compromise, immaturity and pride. Uh, the church should have taken people's breath away. But instead, it was littered with arrogance and quarreling and jealousy. In fact, it, it, it represented or it reflected more of the world than Christ. And I think as you read this letter, there's, there's a hint of heartbreak in Paul's letter as he continues to address problem after problem after problem. But his purpose is to help them see who they really are. Uh, so they can start living up to their capacity, to their purpose. So if you want to join me, uh, we're back in chapter 3 this week. So you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, grab something that takes some notes, have some more diagrams this week. Uh, the message of chapter 3 of Paul's letter is built around three metaphors, a child, a field, and a building. 
And it's interesting, all three of these are in various stages of growth. All three want these followers of Jesus to consider the bigger picture. Uh, through this metaphor, Paul suggests that followers of Jesus need to be serious about their contribution, not only to their own personal growth, but the growth of the church. And so each of these pictures reveals their potential to be a part of something greater, more beautiful than their current reality. Well, last week we talked about their spiritual infancy and, and the need to humbly apply themselves that they can start growing in their faith and realize their potential and purpose in Christ. And Paul continues in verse 5, though. He says, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each task, each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. Uh, really, we can, we can boil this down to two truths. One, we need each other. And two, without God, we can do nothing. Uh, he's the one making things grow. He gets the praise. Some of us plant, some of us tend the soil, some of us water, some of us weed, but only God can take a dead seed and give it life that produces more life. In other words, neither Paul nor Apollos are, are more important than the, uh, than the other. Without a sower, there would be nothing to water. Without water, may as well not have planted the seed. Their leadership accomplished nothing apart from God's power. There's no need or place for competition. Paul's saying, we're in this together. Now Paul comes to a third metaphor that we're all part of a beautiful building project and it involves a building inspection. I mentioned last week that I, I worked in a dietary department of a hospital while I was in seminary. It was interesting, part, part of that job experience is every so often we would get a surprise random inspection from the health department. Uh, talk about stressful. Um, when word came that the, the health inspectors were in the building, uh, it was like all hands on deck, red alert, everything dated, check. Lids on the trash cans, check. Uh, Hairnut, gloves, check, check. Uh, the list seemed endless. And, and usually, inevitably, they would find some minor infraction. But the, this random surprise inspection, what it did was it motivated us to keep certain standards. And these standards were meant to bet, benefit everyone, not, not just the people in the kitchen, but the whole hospital community as well. See, here Paul uses the picture of us constructing a building and the types of materials that we use are going to be inspected. In the same way, this inspection keeps us accountable, keeps us focused on what's important. It benefits all of us. And the reason why it's so important that we're careful how we build is found in verses 16 and 17. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. The, the building under construction is the place where the Spirit of God lives. In fact, it's not a building at all. That's just the metaphor that Paul's using. The temple being built is the people of God, the church. So Paul's saying, y'all are God's temple. Uh, make sure you build it right. Fortunately, Paul gives us some, some blueprints for building properly. And so the first thing we want to look at today is we need to build on the right foundation. On the right foundation. Verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. You see, foundations are everything in a building. When I was in college, they were building a, a Bob Evans uh, across the street nearby. Um, and during, during construction, they began to realize the, the building was actually sinking because they had built it on a swamp. And so once they realized it was sinking, there's nothing they could do. So they, they tore the whole thing down. They reinforced the foundation and they had to rebuild the whole thing all over again. The point is that without a proper foundation, you can't build something that will last. Paul agrees. He says, we need to build on the right foundation. He calls himself an expert, expert builder, a, a wise builder. He uses a word that means that he was not only the, the builder, he was the designer. He's like, I designed it, I, I built it. He was the one who planted the church in Corinth, in other words. He laid the foundation on which the church was built. So what foundation did he, did he build on? Well, there's really only one choice, and it's verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid which is Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is the foundation. We can only build on the person and truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus told a story about this in, in Matthew 7. He says, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He, he, he made sure it was a secure foundation. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house, yet it didn't fall because its foundation was on the rock. And then he contrasts this with the person who hears the word and doesn't put it into practice. And he says he's like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Well, we all know sand isn't a good foundation. It's like building on a swamp. Uh, the first time the storm came, it fell apart. And so those who build on faulty foundations well, it may look good for a while, but when the storms come, those foundations crumble. When the church builds on something other than the person and work of Christ, things like programs or politics or, or social action, really it becomes a church in name only. It, it, loses its, it loses its identity. So Paul laid the foundation of Christ, but others were building on it now. In fact, in Corinth, the next leader in the church was Apollos. He built on what Paul had started, and Apollos was followed by others. And in reality, uh, Paul's not just talking about the leaders, but he's saying all the people in the church as each one adds to the building. So the foundation has been laid. We're building what's already been done <clears throat> on what's already been done. 
We don't need a, a new, we don't need a different foundation because the foundation is Jesus. You see, though, though Pastor Bob and then Pastor Jeff, now Pastor Dan, have all had a hand in building this local church in Norton, Christ has always been the foundation from the very beginning. And it's interesting, the, <clears throat> the original word in tense for laid the foundation uh, refers to a one-time historical event. It happened, it's done, no further. But building communicates that another continues to build on the foundation. It's continual, it's, it's ongoing. Uh, the foundation is set, there's no other foundation. So what does that mean for us practically? I, I wanna share uh, with you an illustration I like to use when I teach a class on, on servant leadership at Grace College at our campus here in Akron. Um, because I think this is key to understanding that we build on the right foundation as well as the key to how we continue the, to grow in our faith. See, as we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that means that our confidence in life is anchored to Jesus and the work that he's done on our behalf. Our values in life are taken from God's word rather than popular opinion. Our direction in life comes from God's spirit through his word uh, rather than the latest fad. Our attitude toward life is, is increasingly filled with gratitude rather than a sense of entitlement. All of this revolves around our identity as it's connected to Jesus. Well, last week, uh, <clears throat> were pictures, our lives were pictured as circles. This week, uh, your life is pictured as a pyramid. Uh, and who'd have, who'd have thought we'd be learning geometry in church? But uh, you see this picture here, this represents your life. Um, <clears throat> kind of divided into four sections. At the top, we have competency and, and skills. This is how well you do what you do. And then it's followed by calling, and that's what you do. Uh, your position, your job, your hobby, your responsibilities. That's followed by character, why I do what I do. My motives, who I am when, when no one's looking. It's, it's how I do how I do things, so with integrity or dishonesty, with love or with harshness. And then finally, at the bottom, at the foundation, is the core. And the question there is, is who do I do it for? Um, who or what is the foundation for, for who I am? What makes me, me? Who or what drives my values and purpose? For the follower of Jesus, this is the root of my identity. This is who I am in Christ. This is whose I am. At my core, I understand and develop the idea that I'm a child of God. I've been chosen. I've been loved. I've been adopted. All these things. You can read Ephesians 1 for more. And, and the fact is, if I know who I am in Christ, I know what to do which influences how I see my job, my calling, my responsibilities, my successes, my failures. I like to use uh, golf as an example. <clears throat> People will often ask me if I golf, and <laughs> my response is I, I try. Uh, I mean, I, I enjoy golf, I just don't get to do it enough to be very good. I've never had lessons. Uh, I used to go out with my golfer friends, and every time I, I hit a bad shot, which was about 85, 95% of the time, 
uh, it was so easy to just get down on myself. And pretty soon it's like, oh man, you're terrible. You're no good. You're a terrible golfer, which could lead to you're a terrible athlete, which led to you can't do anything well, to uh, they don't enjoy golfing with you. And isn't that the slippery slope of the way we think? We take one thing and we just get deeper and deeper with it. Well, after maturing a little and, and realizing that my identity isn't found in what I do or even how people treat me, that my identity is rooted in Christ and that doesn't change. Uh, today, you know, I hit a terrible shot and you might hear me say, well, sure glad my identity isn't in golf. <laughs> in other words, when our foundation is in Christ, I no longer have to depend on the world. I don't have to depend on applause or success in my calling, my hobbies, my relationships to fulfill me. Because in Christ, we already have that contentment and fulfillment. I, I wanna be effective, I wanna be successful, I wanna be good at golf, but it doesn't define who I am. But here's where we struggle. Um, <clears throat> There's a water line here. Picture this as, as, as an iceberg floating in the, in the water. Our calling and our complacency or our competency, our skills are, are above the water. Um, and they're only a small part of the iceberg. There's a whole lot more underneath. But the problem is competency and calling are often where we try to build our lives. It's where we tried to, to identify who we are. Why? It's what people see. It's what people see. When I work on my character and my core, no one sees that. However, these top two are often where we try to find our identity because it's how we see ourselves. It's how we believe others see us. I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher, I'm a manager, I'm a doctor, I'm a golfer. When we place our identity in what we do, we flip the pyramid. And instead we spend most of our time trying to find our identity in our job, in our responsibilities, in, in our skills. And we leave little time focused on character and core, the core of who we've been created to be in Christ. And as you can see, uh, by building our foundation on these things, we're living on shaky ground, or our lives become very unstable. But this is what we, we spend most of the time working on because it's what people see. It's what people say about us. And so I work on my short game, my tee shot. I, I buy the best clubs. I go to the best courses. I, I get lessons. I, bear, I, I buy a pair of plaid shorts and a matching polo uh, because that's what people see. The more People see me get better, the better I begin to feel about myself. But what happens the first time I have a lousy game? I either blow up in anger and embarrass my friends or I start to feel down and depressed. I, I feel like a failure because I've misplaced my identity. I've misplaced my foundation, who I am. You see, the, the point is when we build our foundation on the wrong things, it can lead to some pretty difficult and dangerous places. If I place my identity and core on, on what I do at my job, and then I get laid off, I don't know what to do with my life. 
If I'm in a serious relationship and I, I build my identity of being in that relationship then, and the relationship fails, then it destroys me. If I place my identity in my work and, and in the role of provider, I become a workaholic, which takes away time from my marriage and my family. What happens when I retire? Most of those relationships don't care if I'm in their life or not. You might identify as a dad or a mom, but then your son goes off the wall and is like, man, I'm, I'm a failure. Here's the thing, never put your identity with something you can lose. Never put your identity, build the foundation on something you can lose. You know, I, I've learned, if I've learned anything after having two back surgeries, we've got to keep this, this core, this core. <laughs> Go ahead and flip it back. We've got to keep this core strong. You know, when you strengthen your core, it affects and strengthens every part of your body. And it's the same way spiritually. When Christ is my foundation and my core is strong because I know I'm a child of God and that will never change through failure or success, through storms or sunny days, my character becomes stronger. And what I do and, and how I do it then begins to change. It becomes less about me and more about my attachment to the foundation, which is Christ. You see that the foundation is what holds a structure steady. The foundation of Christ in our lives will hold us steady as well. Most of uh, the foundation is hidden. It, it isn't even noticed by others except that it gives us peace. It gives us security. And then we live our lives in that way. In the same way, the foundation on which we build determines the strength of our church. It determines the, the strength of our lives. It's not flashy, but it runs deep. It roots us firmly in Christ. It's our conviction, it's our attitude, it's what we rely on when life gets difficult. It's the fact that being in Christ is the means in which Christ takes hold of us. Uh, an old hymn says it like this. Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, all-powerful hand. Notice the end of, of verse 10. It says, but each one should build with care. Someone has said the superstructure must correspond to the substructure. In other words, the material used to build the structure must match the value, the strength, the durability, the beauty of the foundation. In other words, we need to build with quality materials. Paul goes on in verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder, builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. You know, remember the, the story of the three little pigs, and they each built a house, one of straw, one of stri uh, sticks, one of bricks. Uh, the big bad wolf comes, and he blows the house down of the straw pig and the stick pig. 
but the house of brick stands firm. And the idea is that God, God's concerned about the quality of his church and the lives of his people. He wants us to build with materials that reflect the strength and security of Christ, the foundation. He says we build with gold, silver, and costly stones, precious stones. Uh, probably is not referring to jewels like diamonds and emeralds and rubies, but to a large foundation stone carved out of granite or marble, which were often put in a, in a foundation to raise the walls and complete the building. Uh, it would have been a common sight for the Corinthians to see these large, costly stones in many of the temples they had in their own city. The wood, hay, or straw were, were also a common sight. Uh, because this was the typical stuff that many of the poorer people in Corinth would have used to build their homes. Wood, hay, and straw weren't evil. Uh, they worked to provide shelter. The problem was they didn't last. They're consumable. They're inferior building materials for such a priceless foundation. So what does this mean for us spiritually? What is a gold act or a, or a silver attitude as opposed to a, a sticks or straw? The quality building materials are ones that I believe reflect the heart of God, the ones that require humility and sacrifice, the ones that take commitment, that rely on God's strength and wisdom empowered by prayer. The wood, hay, and straw represent anything we do, eh, just kind of half-hearted. Uh, or maybe a selfish or poor motive or out of envy or jealousy or grudgingly. Uh, it's the things we do in our own strength, independent of God. These are the things that are considered without value. Um, truth is, there, there's many who, who think they're getting points with God by simply coming to church, but the reality is, is they're, they're coming to a building and stacking wood to burn. You see, it's what you do in worship. It's how you serve. It's how you greet people and love and encourage and build up and, and serve willingly that you start to build with gold and silver and costly stone. But the reality is, however, sometimes we can get so busy uh, crossing off lists of things that we've got to do that we forget to prioritize the things that matter most. We can be so busy doing good, good things that we fail to do the best things. Yeah, and unfortunately, usually reading our Bibles, talking to the Lord in prayer are the first things to go. And then we find ourselves doing things in our own strength and, and we get overwhelmed and agitated and can't figure out why. And so we're evaluated on some key elements in our lives. Uh, these are things that we may not be able to judge for ourselves. We, we recently just had a, a bed rail split uh, split apart after 30 plus years. Um, we, had, we had thought it was hardwood, but it was actually when we saw that it split, it was plywood. Uh, from the outside, we couldn't tell the difference. But Paul says, God knows. God sees and the truth will be revealed. Verse 13, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. So what is it that's being uh, evaluated? The first thing is our motives. Paul alludes to this in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 5. He says, He, God, will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. 
At that time, each will receive their praise from God. God wants to know your motive. Uh, He'll reward pure, unselfish, selfless motives. A good action with a good motive is gold. However, a good action with a poor motive will be straw. For example, you know, I, I may make a meal for someone who needs it, but inwardly grumble about the amount of work that it's going to take. I can give generously while at the same time holding a grudge that the others, they're probably not giving as much as I am. You see, it can get pretty ugly. Uh, I can stand on stage and talk about Jesus, but if my motive is to gain attention for myself, I'm no longer building with quality materials. If I'm not building out of my core on the foundation of Christ, my character and attitudes won't be in line with my actions. The second thing we're evaluated on is our our conduct. In another letter, 2 Corinthians verse, or chapter 5, verse 10, says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us, <clears throat> due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Honestly, the, the word bad is a terrible translation. Uh, the word uh, used here means worthless. Uh, you're going to be judged on what is good and what is worthless. Uh, The way we live our lives, the choices we make day to day will be evaluated. And some will be precious stone or costly stone. Other will be kindling. This judgment uh, that it's talking about here referred to as the Bema seat. And it referred to the Olympic Stadium that was outside of of Corinth. Uh, It's not a seat of punishment. It's a seat of reward. Uh, the winners of a contest would ascend the bema and receive their reward, something like a, a garland or a laurel wreath. And Paul uses this picture and states that every follower of Jesus will be at the bema, which means everybody's building materials will be evaluated and recognized for what they are. And, and most will get a reward, even if it's just a, a participation trophy. Uh, And it seems that that these rewards will give us opportunity to honor Jesus. Now, I realize (laughs) if you haven't grown up in church and are familiar with these things, it sounds a little weird. I mean, what am I going to do with a bunch of rewards and wreaths and and, and crowns? Um, Most of us don't have a trophy room. They're they're in a box in the basement somewhere. Um, It also sounds weird to someone who hasn't come to the realization of all that Christ has done for us. And see, Revelation gives us a glimpse of of what we're gonna do with these crowns, what we're gonna do with these rewards in the the future. The The church is with Jesus and we hear this description of what's happening in heaven in Revelation chapter four. It says, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. If I understand this correctly, that's the church casting its rewards at the feet of Jesus. And so one of the reasons that we want to have a reward is to show the Lord that we love him, that we honor him, that we, we, we want to see him glorified. 
We want the opportunity to praise and worship him. And so we're evaluated by our, our conduct. We're evaluated by our, <clears throat> by our motives. Thirdly, our, our service, our ministry is evaluated. We'll be evaluated on how we use the gifts and resources that God has so graciously blessed us with. In other words, if I have a gift of teaching, but it's easier for me to, to sit and absorb rather than prepare and plan, uh, then, I, then I build with hay and straw. See, God gives us spiritual gifts for a purpose in order to edify and nurture and encourage others to build up the church, the body of Christ. If we, if we fail to use them, are, are we even building at all? So Paul explains that, that God will test our motives, our conduct and service for their quality, but there's, there's coming a day, the day Christ returns for his church when everyone is going to be tested thing is, I think there's going to be a lot of bonfires in heaven that day. <laughs> but I also think we're going to be surprised. We're going to be surprised by some of the beautiful buildings built by followers of Jesus who in this world were never recognized, who were never on stage, who never got their name on a plaque. Most of their materials will escape the flame because they've been faithful in prayer. They've, they've shown kindness to others. They love their neighbors. They have a sincere commitment to Christ. Uh, and their godly attitudes will stand the test. Though I, I don't completely comprehend all that this means, I think it's gonna be pretty awesome. <laughs> the alternative, if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, he'll escape only with his life. Everything else will be lost. Understand, this isn't about salvation. It's not. It's about gaining and losing rewards based on how we've given our best to Jesus. And it's a sobering reminder that God demands our best. The person whose works are consumed by fire while he's still saved, he's going to feel the sting of that loss. In a sense, it's a warning that we, <laughs> that we don't want to walk around heaven smelling like smoke because our lives have, have been wood, hay, and stubble. Understand, uh, these truths aren't here to, to make us fearful. Um, they're not here to make us fearful of the future. The Bema Seat holds us accountable, but it also, it gives us hope. Because no good deed, however small, will be forgotten. Everything we do counts for eternity, even if it's not seen in this world. Every time you remain faithful in a painful situation, you've built with silver. For every time you've made a sacrifice to meet a need, you've, you've built with costly stone. For every time you've invested in someone for Christ, you built with material that will be purified by fire. For every hungry person you've fed, every stranger you've welcomed, every difference you've made for the cause of Christ without doing it to be seen, there's a reward. For every time you, you put all your all into worshiping to, to give praise, there's investment. For every class that you've taught with a heart that desires to make Jesus make sense, for every time you're the last one cleaning up, every time you served, every time you prayed or gave or sacrificed or served to the glory of God, there's an investment. We need to build with quality materials. Finally, we need to build with an attitude of humility. I say, there it is again. 
a humble attitude. Paul concludes this section of, of his letter in verse 21, so, so then, no more boasting about human leaders. <laughs> All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Simply put, Paul's saying when you fight and squabble using the, the wisdom of the world, you're not pursuing what's best. You're really limiting what God has for you. It's interesting, Paul uh, repeats the phrase, all are yours, because he wants us to understand that the inheritance and reward that we have in Christ is so much greater than the petty things that we argue about. Paul wanted them and us to know that, that the way they were acting is like a, a millionaire who argues over a five cent increase in a can of peas. God, God has given us what we need to live for him in this life. And it's silly uh, to, to arrogantly divide the church over irrelevant things. You see, understand, we, how we live now will determine how we live forever. Everything we do counts for eternity. Every thought, every act, every attitude, every motive, every investment in time, treasure, and talent. How are you investing where it really counts? God has, has given us one life to live. And he's told us to prepare to meet him at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we did with that one life. So that being said, as a church, all that's said and done should lead us back to the foundation. All that's said and done should lead us back to Christ. And so we ask, are we, am I pursuing my own agenda or am I pursuing God's heart? Are we simply gathering a crowd or are we helping one another grow and mature humbly in our faith? Are we debating stupid things or are we pursuing what's eternal? Are we, are we going back to the foundation and building with quality materials? And then as individuals, we need to ask on what foundation am I building my life? Is my identity in Christ or am I pursuing something that someday will fail me? Is who I am in Christ influencing my actions and decisions and attitudes? Paul encourages us to see the eternal picture. He challenges us to build carefully and faithfully and diligently. And someday we'll stand before him and hopefully he'll say, well done. And those two words may be the greatest reward of all to hear from our Savior and Lord. You see, being rooted in him, building on the foundation that is Christ, Paul writes in a le another letter, Colossians, he says, whatever you do, in other words, not just the big things, the important things, the things that you're recognized for, but in whatever you do, the mundane, the seemingly trivial, the everyday, the ordinary, the small, whatever it is, he says, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have that sure foundation in Christ. Lord, thank you for, for calling us to yourself and, and being able to build our lives on that foundation of Christ, that we know who we are. Lord, that we know our identity is rooted and anchored 
in Christ. Lord, so thankful for that and, and what that means for our lives. That it's a foundation that will never fade or crack or fail. And so, Lord, thank you for that assurance that, that you give us. Help us to build well. Help us to build well on that foundation. Lord, help us to <clears throat> invest in what's best. And Lord, to give our all to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been great being with you. Take care.